Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast that takes a sideways look at the world of birds and what makes them so awesome. Each week, a special guest joins me to talk about the five species of bird that they will choose above all others to survive the impending environmental apocalypse headed our way. And then they must choose one of those five to go beak to beak in a best bird battle off with my favourite, the mighty peregrine falcon. This week, my special guest is Johnny Fisk. Brought up in North Yorkshire, Johnny has been enthusiastic about wildlife since a very early age, and as a teenager described his birding as being split between the moors around his home, the local reservoir, and the window of any classroom I find myself in. Fast forward eight years, and Johnny is now an estate worker, aka assistant warden at Spurn Bird Observatory, where he has lived for the past five years. At this time of year, his time is usually taken up by the trials and tribulations of the Little Turn colony in the Spurn recording area and planning the Spurn Migration Festival, which returns to birders' calendars this year after a hiatus last year due to the pandemic. Johnny, hello. How are you? Hello. I'm very, very well. Coming to you from sunny Kilnsey. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. It's uh, it's great to catch up. I feel like I've known you for, for many years over Twitter, spraffing about all sorts of nonsense, but great to finally catch up with you. I mentioned there in the introduction that you've been a, a birder since you were knee-high to a grasshopper and would yep. take any opportunity to look for birds, even from a classroom window. Now, what is the best bird you have seen from a, a boring maths lesson? I guess best some birders would think as rarest, of which there is no interesting answer, I'm afraid, but um, oh, no. probably best for me is... Yeah, I grew up in Harrogate, which is very near the red kite release site yeah. in the late 90s, I think. So they became increasingly common as I grew up to the point where lunch break, bell would end, you'll go back to, to the classroom. And uh, I'd just sit in science lab B, watching all of the red kites eating out of the bins and picking on sandwiches and crit chips and things that everyone had dropped. So yeah, red kites. And they, they, they still make me feel like home whenever I see them, wherever I am. So yeah, yeah just red kites having a squabble is uh, probably the best thing. That's brilliant. No, you're right. Best doesn't mean rare. Best just means best, as in some birds being uh, better than others. We all know that. And red kites are up there, aren't they? So did they come down into the playground and start raiding the bins? And stuff? Yeah, they just wandered around. And um, as, they, as they became commoner and commoner, they're just like, things that you see in the traffic. If there's a field being ploughed, it's full of gulls and it's full of red kites just wandering around. You know, I think the most I ever counted from my parents' garden one Sunday afternoon was like 12 in the air at once. They're just constantly in the air over Harrogate, sort of hanging there like a little um, bat signal. Yeah, they're awesome, aren't they? One of the things I was going to ask you about is many years ago, you, when you were part of the, the next generation birders group that you were instrumental in back in the day, you also used to contribute to Mark Avery's blog. You used to do a, a brilliant cartoony This Week in Birding, I think you called it, but, you know, but all the rarities and you would draw them on one sort of page in your, your brilliant sort of cartoony way. I used to always love those. And I just wondered, do you still doodle do you do you sketch in the field do you do you do anything like that still yeah constantly doodling usually when I should be doing something else but most of the art's sort of done for me and only me <laughs> in a notebook and occasionally the co-editor of the sperm wildlife report Mr Tim Jones will try and bully me into providing some little doodle or other for for it so they, they may be some in the upcoming report for last year I'll, I'll leave that as a surprise so 
you've lived and worked at the Spurn Bird Observatory for five years now. So you must have seen and found some brilliant birds. So tell us a little bit about your role there and highs and lows. Yeah, yeah. I moved here five years ago this summer, which uh, feels quite insane when I say it out loud. I used to come here a lot on weekends, used to meet lots of other young birds here. It's how I form most of my friendships. I, I just really love the community here as well. Uh, lots of old stalwart birders and loads of people to learn from. Those are guys who sort of would treat us young youngsters just the same as they treat all their friends. It was a, like a really nice vibe. There's a pub here that helps. Mm -hmm. The observatory accommodation at the time was really Spartan and just quite good fun. I, I lived abroad for a short while and came back uh, in the summer of 2016. Just popped over here really to see everyone, catch up. And uh, the landlady of the Crown and Anchor, who I used to beg for a job all the time when I was a teenager, she finally gave in and offered me a job. So from 2018, a little job became available actually at the observatory. So I, I said a fond farewell to the Crown and joined the employee of the Ops full time. And yeah, you're, you're right. You see lots of good birds. I'm very, very, very lucky to live this sort of inherently birdie lifestyle on the Spurn Peninsula. Probably some of the locals think I should have found more rare birds, given the amount of time I spent here. I am quite famously unobservant and uh, always doing something else. My friends text me going, oh, just just, just heard there's a red fruit falcon at Spurn. You connected, Johnny, and I'll be going, no, I was in the septic tank or painting a chair or something. <laughs> but I think if you're here for that amount of time, it does, it does happen to you, so... I have been very lucky to stumble across some very nice birds and had had some good birds sort of find me. Probably the most notable one was a lesser yellow legs um, on one winter morning when I was taking a little dog out for a walk without any radio or anything that we used to communicate because I thought it's the first of December. There'll be there'll be nothing exciting to see. And <laughs> it was the first first record for Spurn on a on a little puddle in a field covered in snow. Was it really the first record? I'm surprised. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was. It, it was a classic that all of the all, all the local birders turned up and immediately told me how long overdue it was, and it wasn't that special, but in their own sort of you know jokey way. Pretty chuffed when I went into the Crown that evening and bought myself a drink. No one else was there. <laughs> Celebrators on your own, but yeah, that, that's a crack and find. Yeah. They're, they're lovely birds. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. Um, it was yeah, really special. I'd never seen one before, so it was a really nice way to. Round off another great year here in 2017 with a, a nice little American weeder. Yeah, self-found life. That's the dream, isn't it? Great stuff. So tell us about your little terns. Yes, we have Yorkshire's only little terns breed on the coast here and on a brackish lagoon and in the sand dunes bordering that and the sea. They are the creatures that stalk my every waking nightmare. They're, they're beautiful. They're lovely little birds, but yeah, they require a lot of the wardens my time, our turn warden's time. In terms of what the observatory does, it's probably the most important thing nationally and internationally. Yeah. You know, they're, 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 they're such a threatened species. Their habitats have been squeezed out everywhere that they're nesting. So we have sort of about 40, 40 pairs in the last couple of years and they, they, they have mixed fortunes. Of course, everything and its dog wants to eat them, including dogs. So we have to put a lot of time and effort into providing yeah, the electric fences, round-the-clock wardening. And it's another way that I get to meet loads and loads of really nice, experienced, uh, interesting people who come and work and volunteer for the term project. Currently, our term warden is a lovely lad called Toby and a lovely girl called Lucy. And hopefully <laughs> provide some terms with a, a nice nice total of fledged youngsters to uh, whisk off to West Africa at the end of the summer. Fantastic. I'm taking a, a, a short little break from hanging out at the colony to, to be with you here. And then I'm heading off to the northeast on holiday where I, I hope to see some little terms at a colony I want to go visit. 
<laughs> just for a Bosman's. Yeah, good lad. Yeah, we've got a, a colony, as you know, up Newton by the sea between Newton and Beadnell. And there's been a, a black turn hanging out with them as well this year. Before we delve into your top five birds we're going to talk about in a moment, tell us about the Spurn Migration Festival. Yes, brilliant. Thank you. Way back in 2013, there were two leading minds in the Spurn sphere, Andy Roadhouse and Martin Garner, now both sadly deceased. Mm -hmm. And they put their brains together and came up with the Spurn Migration Festival, which was basically just a celebration of migrant birds and the people who watched them based here at Spurn. It's just a really fantastic social week, sort of like bird fair, but with the birds, you know, it's uh, it's quite rustic. It's really wholesome. It's sort of a bit of a family feeling. We see the same visitors come every year, welcome new ones with open arms. And usually there's lots of nice birds for them to see. It's in early September. For us, coincides with sort of one of the peak periods for the autumn passage. And that's what we really hope to show people. We're always hoping for these sort of Southwesterly winds that whisk the birds towards the coast. We've got the humble one side, the sea the other, so they do get funneled down. And uh, we've got our little Vismig sites, which is just like pure, unadulterated, <laughs> concentrated migration. And at that time of year, there's actually meadow pipits that often steal the show. You wouldn't really think it. I, I doubt that's been anyone's top five bird. If it is yours, like, you know, props. They've got an honourable mention with Lucy Lapwing when she was talking about the rock pipit, but it hasn't been a top five bird. So why do they feature so heavily at the Migration Festival? It's just that that's their, their peak time for passage. From a small, unassuming little squeaky brown bird, they, it becomes an actual spectacle. You know, just the num sheer numbers that go through thousands of them in a single morning. They do that little super, super, super call as they fly around. They're doing a little bounding flight. Occasionally we get one with no tail, which we shout out as a new potato, and maybe a little wave of them will fly over. And then suddenly 20, 30, 40 birds you didn't know were creeping around in the grass underneath all come up to join them and they sort of all head south in a little cloud. And, you know, they're, they're, they're birds from northern England, Iceland, maybe Scandinavia, and they're heading, you know, to sort of southern Europe and Spain. And often when you tell that to people, they just have no idea it's these these sort of furtive migrants that you get to learn about um, when you spend time here, you know, rooks, great tits, chaffinches. To me, those weren't migrant birds, but I've learned from being here that, you know, everything does its own little movement. Yeah. So everything, uh, yeah, is really worth all of our attention. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And you've used a term there, which some listeners might not be familiar, which is vis-mig. Yeah, it's just uh, the shorthand bit of annoying birding shorthand that we like to use, visible migration. People who watch visible migration or vis-miggers, it's sort of like an art form in birding when you stand there at the Warren, which is our Vismig site here at Spurn, and you're there with, you know, the big guns who do it hours on end or can pick out a corn bunting, a Lapland bunting just on corn or even seeing the bird. These are the birds actually actually going somewhere. They're going on their migration. They could die or they do it yeah. or they could be eaten by another bird or they could have hatched like weeks ago. And this is the first time they're doing it all on their own without a tom-tom so you know it's uh i think it's utmost respect and uh absolutely it just so happens that it, it looks absolutely fantastic as well and sounds great yeah i bet i think you know one of the one of the themes that's come out of this podcast and talking to people is that migration and birds that go away and come back again do hold a special place in people's hearts i, I used to say that the only time i like watching meadow pipits is when they're doing their little parachute or if they were disappearing in the talons of a merlin yeah but that was really cr crass and horrible of me to say 
And uh, yeah, I've got utmost respect for little um, little Mippet and his friends. Yeah, definitely. And it's great, isn't it? Like you say, when you see things actually just flying out to sea or coming in off the sea, you know, and, and seeing that visible migration, that visible movement is a wonderful thing. So Spurn Migration Festival is where you can go and see this incredible event in action, folks. So how do we find out about it? Yeah, we've got a good online presence. And as the, the summer rumbles on into autumn, um, you should be seeing a lot more of it. We've got a website, spurnmigfest.com. Uh, you can also find out a lot more through the Spurn Bird Observatory website. It's the 10th to the 12th of September, Friday to Sunday. The event this year is slightly different from ones of past. This year, yeah, the festival is more open plan. We're going to hold it in some fields in Kilnsea, the camping's at a different field. And I am predicting a red-footed falcon will fly through the marquee at some point and catch a dragonfly. You heard it here first. That's me sold. So, yeah, pencil me in for, uh, for a bit of that action. So it's time to push the button marked random nonsense and ask you this question. Zero punches pulled. If you decided to have a sky burial when you die and you could choose one species of bird to dispose of your earthly remains, which bird would it be? There is actually a really lovely Pete Dunn story, short story, about how we put so much effort into our life list. He thinks we should all, as birders, really put the same effort into our death list. And you could have like death list assists and your innards could be used on a pelagic and your skull could be used for nesting wrens and things like this and um he talks about yeah sky burials so i i, I won't say i've given it much thought but i think there should be just one plain straight up answer which is is Lamagaya, if only for the fact that then at least your remains then get dispersed all over the place when they go and drop like your shin or something on top of a Tibetan villager's head or something. <laughs> I think Lamagai should be should be the correct answer and, and my answer. I mean, that's a very, very good answer. And, you know, I have contemplated that as well, you know, when I've spent hours thinking about this myself. But for me, I, I just want something really cute. So I, th I thought about long tail tits, you know, that would be, that would be good. <laughs> but... I think I'm probably going to go with some form of what the cutest duckling, you know, just just all just pecking at me. Like, that's what I would want. So like maybe mallard ducklings. Yeah, no, I have to rethink this. I'm not sure I want to be taken by mallards. Maybe maybe smew ducklings. Oh, yeah. After they've jumped out the nest box, they do need a bit of nourishment. Yeah, they just bounce on my bloated corpse and then... Yeah, like a crash mat. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's perfect. It's, it's providing a service. And the way I want to go... So, yeah, I'm going to get that written into my will as soon as possible. Right, enough of this tomfoolery. So now, as regular listeners will know, the premise of this podcast is you get the chance to save five species of birds from certain extinction. I know that you've spent long and hard talking about your, your top 10 birds, so you've, you've really given this some thought over the years. So why don't you tell us about bird number one, one, one. So, yeah, as you say, I, I, I spent a stupid amount of time actually thinking this favourite topic of conversation, driving back from Sperner on Twitches. I will mention that one of our friends really didn't understand the question when we said, what 10 birds would you take to a desert island or five birds? And he sort of listed chicken, duck, turkey, <laughs> goose, and then really weirdly razor bill. <laughs> so we went, well, we can understand you think you've got no food, you're going to eat these, but why razor bill? And he thought he could slice the chicken up with the razor bill's beef. <laughs> 
<laughs> which we thought was quite adorable at the time. And yeah, I think what you've asked me is a form of sort of burning torture. Five is too few. Look at it holistically and in this wasteland, we sort of, we still want a bit of a function ecosystem, a nice burning soundscape and uh, scene to watch. So it was, it was really tricky, but my bird number one is the house martin. Not because I live in East Yorkshire and they're famously from Hull, <laughs> but because it's my favourite Vismig spectacle is uh, the house martins. They have sort of two peaks in the late spring to May, June, and then in the early autumn when the juveniles and the adults are leaving, going back to, you know, these incredible places in the Congo where they're going to whirl around in some snowy mountains with some monkeys below them or something. They're the sound of summer, they're the farts of summer, the little call, little... They, they enliven any any little village. They enliven every building. What's better than a building? A building with house martin nests on it. They've got a really lovely colour scheme. I love the little, the black on top with a little sugar lump rump and clean white underneath. But I mean, I think I'm appealing to my sensitive side here. They've got fluffy feet. They've got fluffy little hairy feet and toes. So yeah, I think in this in this fictional wasteland, I would really it would just lift my spirits. <laughs> I might be disfigured by like nuclear fallout, but at least I might have a house martins nesting on my um, burnt out bunker. <laughs> They're excellent birds, and it's a, it's an excellent choice. I'm surprised we've never had them before. To be honest, we've had swallow and swift. They they are they they're wonderful little birds, and and when you see them up close, that sort of blue black shimmer they've got going on and oh, yeah. contrast yeah, yeah. between that that real white they're gorgeous gorgeous little birds they go to a bit more effort though as well with their um pottery than swallows at least they swallows just sort of leave open plan you know i think i you've got to give respect to the house mind for going the extra mile a bit of extra mud spitting and uh making that lovely little little hobbit door on the front of their nest yeah hobbit feet hobbit door actually yeah they are the, the hobbit they're quite small they go on fantastic adventure. I'm not very good on films. I can't remember if that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think we've struck upon something there. That, but yeah, you're right. They they make amazing nests, don't they? And, and much more impressive because they they build them like under your eaves, but like against the vertical wall, which is different to the way swallows do. And you know, all these a thousand or. 1200 or however many little pellets little mud pellets that they make with this beautiful little little hole at the front a bit like a mud sort of long-tailed tits nest isn't it it's like a perfect <laughs> yes. little structure and i believe that in the days gone past they were seen as a lucky charm for buildings and villages and things if you had house martins they were a good omen like you know we we've talked about on this podcast about birds being bad omens and a lot of obviously the corvids and blackbirds and barn owls you know all these birds that are believed to be spooky or harbingers of death whereas house martins are the opposite they were believed to convey a degree of protection to homes and to villages i have a slight personal connection to them and i'm not advocating you should raise birds unless you're an expert um but a bird observatory the public always come to us because they think we physically look after birds and, and nurture them and uh, there was a, a nest of house martins that we had a very wet spring and the whole nest had fallen off and actually killed the adult bird crushed it but the the young was still alive oh, right. so me and and the the uh, the assistant warden of the obs at the time actually raised these house martin chicks in a little shoe box we made a nest out of socks and you would just sit there in the summer eating a bacon sarnie or whatever in a load of house martins on your knee. And then uh, occasionally they'd all get up and fly and do little laps around the living room like a crazy farting mobile on the ceiling. 
and uh, they always sit on sit on the on the curtain rail, and uh, we went and released them eventually with all of the uh, house martin colony at the caravan site just down the road, and yeah, it was just amazing thinking that those things that have crapped all over our sofa, yeah. you know, might have spent spent that winter in the I think they winter in the Congo or that central belt of Africa above the rainforests proper mind-blowing yeah. stuff that and th- those birds that you've reared effectively and will spend days week however long just at ridiculous altitudes these are amazing creatures that used to sit on your knee and like you say fly around your living room that, that's fantastic what, what an amazing privilege that must have been oh man i'm so jealous that's great you know the other thing to mention is back before they were called house martins you know they, they were literally just called martin martin could have been nigel you, what you think? You think we could have species called sand nigels now? It just happened to be Martin is the name they chose. I'm certain of it. I'm sure that's what happened. You know, I, I'm sure they had a short list. You know, and they just kind of went, nah, Derek, we're not having that, and then they just stuck with Martin, and then they tagged on House and Sand later. So don't quote me on this, folks. It may or may not be true, but I like to think it is. Right, let's crack on, and we'll talk about <laughs> your second choice. Bird number two. Two. So my second bird is the blackbird. They are for me the epitome of migration. They are everything I, I want in a migrant bird, wrapped up in their little silky black package. You know, they're just beautiful, jazzy, honey velvet song dribbling down from the roof in the spring. And it's sort of the first, not so much out here. I uh, we live in the in the real coastal, the wasteland, and I don't often hear them singing until March, April. You know, a winter visit inland. That first blackbird you hear of the year, it's like that Cabri thing, a cup and a half of joy or whatever they say. That's how it makes me feel, just fills me up. And as you were saying about the migration of also birds coming back north and heading out, we see like a little spring pump of numbers of the blackbirds that have probably wintered in your granny's garden or heading back out to Scandinavia. And the warden will come and bring out a huge looking blackbird. It looks like it's a falcon sitting on his, on his hand you know, with these long-winged continental birds. And there's just the differences of colour in their beaks, even the adult males. Some, you know, banana yellow, some of them are almost pink. Some of them are real deep orange colour. And they're just, they're just a stylish-looking bird. But for me, they, they're up there with my favourite bird in the world because of their autumn migration. Thrushes famously come in in the autumn, your red wings, your field fairs, everyone look forward to hearing their red wing calling while they're taking the bins out in October. You know, autumn's here. And the blackbirds do come throughout the autumn, but they really become notable in the spurn year into November and even into December. So for me, that's wonderful that it's sort of you're thinking you're slipping into these short, dark days of winter and then we'll have a blackbird fall, you know, and there'll be hundreds in the spurn area. There'll be fields full of them. And uh, it's like a little flashback, the burning acid trip that you just took over the last three months. It's like a little hit they give you. But then... Going even further, there's a particular moment in the, in the blackbird year. So, you know, they've all come in in the day. If you read Andy Roadhouse's The Birds of Spurn book, it's a massive tome, but he perfectly describes the feeling and the, the experience of a blackbird day. It can be really sort of murky, a bit foggy, and you'll just hear sort of like the, that ripping paper noise of birds' wings. And a load of blackbirds will tumble out of the sky and land in a field or in a hedgerow all throughout the day. You know, it might be six, it might be 60. But as the as the day, the short day plods on and it gets to, you know, four in the afternoon, whoever's staying at the observatory at the time, and I've got some friends who specifically come for these this blackbird spectacle, ringers who come only wanting to ring blackbirds. And uh, we all gather together in, as it's getting dark in the observatory garden or sat on the 
seawall outside the pub and uh, the blackbirds head off. Obviously, they're nocturnal migrants, these thrushes. You start hearing their little contact call. They've got this migration call where they call to each other. It's like a little thin little... I can't really do a very good impression of it. And they, they call to each other and then you'll see them, little groups, and they spiral up. And you're looking there in your bins as the lights fade and you're getting them. And sort of as you focus your bins towards infinity, you see more and more and more and more of them in the sky, like little specks. And the sky becomes like, you know, the stars aren't out yet, but they are because they're black stars and they're black birds. And they all slowly head off northwest up the Humber. Usually there's a lovely Humber sunset, a nice November sunset going on. So that's just a proper like hairs on the back of your neck. They're not on end. They've shot off inland with the blackbirds. It's so good. And uh, yeah, it's like the, the, the Crown Car Park, the cops there, the big sycamore, big elms, they sort of wring themselves dry of blackbirds and they've all risen up into the air and headed north into uh, into your granny's garden or your garden, or maybe they're going to Spain. You know, maybe you're burning enthusiasms at a bit of a low ebb. It's getting towards the end of the year and they just sort of come and raise your spirits and sort of improve your life. <laughs> so yeah, big shout out to the, to the blackbird. That's amazing. I'm typically used to blackbirds, like most people having them in the garden, getting up on top of a tree and belting it out, or just panicking all the time which is what i see them do most is making that alarm call because there's a magpie or a sparrowhawk or whatever but yeah to to see them in that different light must be be something amazing to witness fantastic let's move on tell us about your third choice bird number three 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 waders are my favorite group of birds absolutely full stop the end uh, and there are so many to choose there's gray plovers this time of year a may gray plover that's just absolute sex on legs spotted red shank is sex on legs on legs on legs you know a black velvet bird with a red beak and constellations on its back that's just amazing but slowly moving into this time of year here at Spurn, you know we're actually in the sort of wader doldrums where there's they've all headed out east they've all gone they're all in the arctic or i hope they are with arctic foxes and things so we wait until july uh, i mean we've already had our first green sandpiper of the autumn which yeah autumn is here summer's over basically but for me, once the wader passage starts uh, and it just boils down to one thing, and that is dunlins. They are the underappreciated little birds, little scuttling waders on the, on the shoreline of any water body. They're characterful. They've got little personalities. They're always bickering, they're always fighting, they're always chasing off ring colours or running away from sandalings. They're challenging, you know. I, I don't think any birder could resist walking past a flock of dunlins without giving them a little check or something else. And even if there's nothing else in there, no white-run sandpipers, no semi-palmated sandpipers, you've had a good time. You've watched some dunlins. It came to me in the last couple of years when the summer's slowly slipping into the autumn. All the waves are coming back. We've got the black-tailed godwits all fighting. You know, maybe a juvenile spot chank or two have turned up. The golden plovers are coming back. The grey plovers are coming back. There's not. There's sandaling. There's little stints. You know, you've got all these amazing names on the uh, on the set list, but. The main headline artist for me is uh, is Dunlins, especially that proper black belly, little square pudding on their tummy and the little bit of a paley face and the little cute white eye, big black beak. And then just the variation on the colours they can have on top, the amount of orange they can have on their crown and on their tertials and scapulars and the white. And it's all beautifully carved in. They've got beautiful little voices. And I uh, was very, very lucky to spend a very short amount of time in there summer realm i lived in the, in norway northern norway for a bit they're just fantastic sitting on a little hummock and singing 
like a, like an insect. And you know they're, they're very common up there and everyone is as good as the last. You can't knock a Dunlin and anyone who looks over them for something else is, is a bit of a burning charlatan, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're right. I think they tend to be the reference wader, don't they? Or certainly the reference smaller wader to compare other birds to. And I think that does them a disservice. It's like, you know, what makes this not a Dunlin? Whilst that's a helpful thing when you're first maybe getting into birding and first learning waders, because they're a completely confusing group of birds. There's numerous different plumages at any time. And, you know, that there are a lot, a lot of differences within a species, even different races within. There's three races of Dunlin, for example, yeah. you know, all subtly different. And then I think the tendency is, like you say, to, to go, okay, is it a Dunlin? No, move on. What else could it be? You know, or, or yes, it is a Dunlin move on look for something else more interesting and look at another dunlin (laughs) they are in their summer plumage they're stunning little birds i was watching one a few days ago whilst looking at a a much rarer bird right next to it but the dunlin was a was a lovely bird it just wasn't a redneck stint yeah i can make an exception and admit a little bit of a crush on a redneck stint but um i think my heart is with dunlins but what i'm then can't wait for in sort of late july into august it's to see my first juveniles. Juvenile waders are just, or oh, they're just like, yeah, carved from from the most heavenly wood and metal and, and and ink. But the most wonderful thing I think about seeing the juvenile Dunlin is sometimes they still got a little bit of fluff on their head. They still got a little bit of down, some little bit of protective floof that they had in their nest, wherever their nest was. It was in a mountain in central Norway or in Iceland. Just wow! And by the time early September rolls around, they're thronging. There's thousands of waders in the Spurn area. And yeah, I think as a whole, the Dunlin takes 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 the prize for Wader King. I love the fact that you'll know this, I guess, but maybe people listening won't. The fact that they often hang out with golden plovers. So they have this sort of like almost like co-pilot relationship with a golden plover. And they, they, they used to get called plover's page or in Iceland, plover's slave, because often... <laughs> one or more than one bird would hang out with a golden plover and literally just shadow them around on the breeding sites. And it's believed that that's because plovers, they're, they're more responsive to predators, but like the, the little kid at school hanging around with the big kid to get protection. So I love that, that they hang out with the, with the big lads. <laughs> Never actually seen that myself. And the other thing I like is in Shetland, they call them Tang Snipe. Don't know why. But Tang Snipe sounds like a great band name to me. Not always like a yeah. like a good band name. So so yeah. Any any budding musicians out there? Tang Snipe, right? Again, sorry, I've taken this down a level. I apologise. Let's move on to your fourth choice, bird number four. So at this lot, I was going to give to Hoopoo Lark or Hoopoe Lark, as you'd say. Exactly. Uh, it was my first birding trip I did with just just mates. They just absolutely blew my brains out. Their song. Um, perform from the top of a bush and then the crazy little parachute kamikaze dives they do but as a whole I don't think the species holds that much to me it's just literally that one first bird on that morning in in the western Sahara so I consulted another Pete Dunn story he's got called 10 where he and his wife are doing a very long drive for America and they come up with their 10 favorite birds and it descends into loads of arguments you know, and, and I'm wondering what their other birds can eat. They need a wader so they can feed their merlin and all sorts of stuff like this. Um, so I was thinking, oh, my birds are quite big. I've got thrushes, uh, a hirundine that fills up the air. The thrushes, you know, tootle around on the ground. That's that's good. The dunlin's my token wader. I need something that flits around in the trees. 
And it just was very obvious um, because they are continually the highlight of every autumn. And that's Palace's warbler, Palace's leaf warbler. It was one of the first rarities I actually ever saw and, and flushed and made lots of birds very angry with me. I was under the age of 10 and my half my family are from Northumberland and we went to Holy Island. I, I visited Holy Island since and I still recognise the tree, the sycamore that this bird was in. This palace is warbler, and apparently I ran up to all of the twitchers and said, "Like, what are you looking at?" And uh, off it flew. But no, they are—they are the dictionary definition of of side for me. It's like a little perfect color scheme, little nugget. Uh, you know, the gold, the grey green, bit sort of a bit of blue in there, maybe. Every single time I see one, it's it's just as good as the first. Not as good as the first. That first one didn't really count. I think I got untickable views. Not that I knew what that meant. We see them almost every autumn here, and yeah, they're just they're just sensational. I've I've I was very lucky last year that I was sat in one of the hides along the Spurn Peninsula, and I was looking for waders mainly, and a little bird flew right past the window of the hide, going past the eye level, and it gave me a little cheeky wink and landed in an elder, and it was the, the first palaces warbler of the autumn last year. So yeah, it was lovely to have a little bit of private time with that one. I don't think there's a tree on the, in the world that can't be improved with uh, a little little flock of palaces warblers. Absolutely. They're, they're a bird as favourite, aren't they? They're stunning and they're always a star attraction when en- whenever anyone turns up. And they're, they're just amazing, perfect little packages. Striped Sprite was one name I, I remember hearing somebody call them once. And that... seven, a seven-striped Sprite, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Embarrassingly, last autumn, there was one in South Shields. And I'd gone to South Shields that day for the tiger flycatcher that was there at the time. It was too close not to twitch it. And I didn't know that there was a palaces. So I ran up to this group of people hoping to see this flycatcher that I didn't know was still there or not, but I was hoping it would be. And I didn't know that there'd been a palaces warbler also reported. And they were all looking and they were going, there it is, there it is. And I'm looking for the flycatcher. And then eventually got on this bird and I'm like, (laughs) That's a palace's warbler, you know. So That's the best surprise anyone's ever had. <laughs> it was, but I was so nervous about getting the, the flycatcher. I was like, oh, oh, hang on, I'm going to have to come back to this, you know. So I watched that for a couple of minutes and then ran around the corner, saw the flycatcher, but actually I spent more time with the warbler. Oh, yeah, no, you Which would. says it all, doesn't it? Great stuff. Right, we're coming to the, the end now. So tell us about your fifth and final choice. And, oh, my goodness, this is a corker. Bird number five. Gun to my head, my favourite bird, a bit like my favourite song, is always the same answer, and that is it's a sparrowhawk. Yes. I think they're probably maybe the one of the first raptors you learn about as a, as a kid, as a kid bird, a kestrel buzz, sparrowhawk, sparrowhawk, you're in, they're in your garden. They're wild-eyed. They look absolutely mad. They connect you and they connect suburbia, and I think they do a really important service for you know the 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 wider public they connect you to a like a world of murder outside your kitchen window they're not rsvp garden birdwatch poster cute the males there's no there's no more beautiful bird in the world than a, a you know a mature male sparrowhawk it's not gray it's a blue it's a, it's a grown-up blue you know like how when you're grown up you eat dark chocolate when you're grown up blue is actually gray <laughs> the, and, and then it complements because i did gcse art i know that Blue and orange are complementary colours, so the sparrowhawk knew what it was. It did GCSE art, I think. It probably did A-level art, too. <laughs> so that's why it's orange bars on the front. You know, if they get old enough, the eye goes orange. 
orange and blue on white and beige. They've got those little tiny knitting needle legs, but they're murder weapons. Uh, we have we have a few pairs that breed in the area, so I get to watch their amazing courtship dances on still days in the late winter, early spring, and that's just wonderful. And and we, we do get migrants um, here. You know, you, you do see sparrowhawks heading south. Again, one of them furtive birds you wouldn't expect moves. It's not a sparrowhawk, but once uh, a lady in Easington said she had a dead buzzard under a tree in her garden, which is the village just to the north of us. So she said, I wasn't that interested. You know, I thought, oh, that's sad, poor, poor buzzard. But she said it had a ring on, so I went up there, and it was, it was actually a kestrel, and the ring was from Norway, and it had been ringed in the nest that, that spring. So obviously it, it had done its first migration, its first sea crossing, arrived in the Spurn area, and it probably was knackered. It was right underneath the big Leylandii trees. I think it just must have expired there. But, you know, the fact that the, the birds of prey are doing this movement as well, and they're doing it to probably chase all those finches that are moving with them, um, you know, a migrant sparrowhawk, there's, there's just no finer bird. Yeah, they're a bit of wilderness in our world of order and flower beds and borders and climbing frames and patios. I think any time you watch a bit of Sparrowhawk murder, it's a window back to a more primeval time. Definitely. That, that sort of, like you say, when you've got your garden and what you imagine your garden is and all those things you've just mentioned and your bird tables, and then you just get that injection of chaos. Yeah, good phrase. <laughs> That's another band name. Injection of Chaos. That's the first album. Thanks, Snipes' first album. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen them once or twice flying up our back lane, like really low along the hedge and then just up and over and under the bird table and panic, boom, chaos. Just incredible birds and the aerial mastery as well. I mean, the, like you've just said, you know, they, they look incredible, but they're just the skill that they've got to do that and to basically turn right angles. You know, they'll turn a corner, they'll, they'll fly up one back lane, hang a left, go up there, and then up and over a car and into a garden and smack some to death. I, I saw one the other day, it just shot in front of me, went through a little clump of reed, and I swear not a single reed stem was disturbed, and it went straight through the middle. Yeah. What I love about them is that the entire bird universe knows yeah. when there's one around. All the birds are behaving different, all the way just do a bit of a crouch. I've even seen the Brent geese here on the Humber all just fly off because a sparrowhawk, a big female, was doing her sort of, little loop the loop roller coaster trying to attract a mate or trying to advertise her presence and that was enough to get the prince to leave yeah you know i can't imagine a sparrow hawk could take a brent maybe if it entered through the eye socket or something <laughs> but um that respect they command amongst all other birds that's uh, yeah that needs to be uh, honored we had a, a starling murmuration roost at, at the pond just a half a mile that way this winter. And so I was I was there a, a few nights and there was one night where a sparrowhawk was just literally on the path behind the reeds, just stood there waiting. And when they came down, it would just fly into the reeds and just come out with a starling. And there would be all this squawking and panic. And, you know, everybody's just watching this, this amazing spectacle. And I'm just watching this sparrowhawk, you know, just going in and, Tearing, tearing it up it was just you're like me you probably you root for the cheetah instead of the baby antelope a hundred percent every single time yeah definitely it, and yeah, yeah and a couple of things i didn't know i just i was just reading is that it's the largest size difference of any raptor between the male and the female sparrowhawk i didn't realize that okay. i always obviously it's well known that males are smaller 
than females in, in raptors. And that's why peregrines get called, the male peregrines called a tearsel, which is Latin for third. You know, it's a third smaller than the, than the female. But sparrowhawks, it's the size difference is bigger. And sometimes you can get the female being twice as heavy as the male which is pretty impressive. And, and then that's obviously that difference between what prey they'll take. You know, the male will take the smaller birds, the sparrows, the finches, the tits, the things like that. Whereas the females can go for much bigger stuff, the wood pigeons and what have you. Rent geese. <laughs> Be an amazing thing to see. But I think 120 different species have been recorded as being killed by sparrowhawks, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, that's quite a hit list. That's, that's better than killing Eve. Yeah, definitely. I, I, well, I, another reason I think the sparrowhawk is just such a badass bird is I don't think I've ever been on a Twitch or been looking for a rare bird or hearing people talk about a rare bird without the uh, the scenario of it being whisked away by a sparrowhawk coming up. So I like to think there's sort of this fictional yeah hitman sparrowhawk who's like, oh, there's a redneck stint at Blythe, right? See you later, lads. I'm off. <laughs> he just whizzes off to munch. He's actually that. That's his list. That's entirely his list. Those 100 and whatever species. That's just one, one real bloodthirsty bird. <laughs> one sniper sparrowhawk. Brilliant. Well, you've picked five brilliant birds. Then I've loved hearing all about the migration and and the things that we might not know about common birds and how they how they move around. So that's been really great. But as you know, the premise of this podcast is. You choose your five birds to bundle onto the ark and save from certain extinction. But you have to choose one of those five to be your ultimate champion and go beak to beak, claw to claw, talon to talon with my favourite, the peregrine falcon. And regular listeners will know that in the first series, I tried to decide who was the winner of the battle. And obviously I was rubbish at that. So this series, I've been doing it a different way. And each week I've chosen a different device, a different, hopefully fun, but ultimately ridiculous way to decide on which is the best bird. So this week, and this idea was put into my head by Alex Bond, who I recorded with last week. And I said, it's ultimately pointless. And he said, and that's how you're going to decide next week. So yes, this week we are going to play Pointless. So I have three questions for you, Johnny. Okay. And each of these questions has multiple answers and multiple pointless answers, i.e. birds that haven't been named by the hundred respondents to each of these questions that I asked on Twitter yesterday. So I've got three questions and I'm going to do it either as if you can get two out of three pointless answers, your bird wins. Or if you get less than 10 points in total, your bird wins. Seems fair. I'm game. Which bird are you going to put up into the battle? I'm going for a slight David and Goliath scenario. I couldn't sacrifice my Sparrowhawk against Peregrine. That would be unfair. So I'm hoping a flash of its rump will be enough to blind the Peregrine and it will get away and it's the, uh, the palace's warbler. Right. Excellent choice. So let's go for it. It's the palace's warbler, palace's leaf warbler up against the peregrine falcon in a pointless game of pointless. So here we go. Question number one to you, Johnny. Name one bird species on the UK red list, but exclude birds from S to Z. So up to the letter R, I want you to name a bird on the UK red list. You get one shot at each of these questions. Okay, I'm going to go corncrake. Ooh, that was a popular choice. 
it's not pointless. That is six. Six people said Corn Craig out of a hundred. So you're up against it now. Palace is wobbler. You've still got two chances to get a pointless answer, so you can still win on that, or if you get less than ten. So question number two. Name a bird species listed in the top 50 birds in the big garden birdwatch results this year. Black-headed girl. Is a pointless answer. You're right. That was actually 26th on the list, and it was a pointless answer. Shout out to black-headed girls. So you're back in the game, Johnny. It comes down to this. Question number three. Name any duck species on the current ninth edition of the British list. There's 43, not quite 50, but there's 43. I've got 100 respondents and there's 12 pointless answers. Oh, there's going to be some people that put the obscure on, didn't they? Uh, because I can't pronounce the other one, I'm going to say white-winged scoter. Is a pointless answer. Well played, my friend. Take that, peregrine. So this week's winner of Golden Grenades is Johnny's Palace's Warbler. Well done. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, thanks again, Johnny. You've been a brilliant guest on the on the podcast this week. So just to remind everybody, the Spurn Migration Festival kicks off on the 10th to 12th of September. Check out the website. Book your camp and slot. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you all there. And yeah, thanks for yeah lovely chat this afternoon. Take care, man. Thanks very much for coming on. Goodbye. Well, that's your lot for this week, folks. Pop back again next week for the last show in the series when I will be joined by your friend and mine, Will Rose. Until then, bye for now.